to Olive Branch Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm finally back after taking a break. Um, I was on maternity leave for a few months. Uh, It's exciting to be here, and I'm excited to start this conversation with someone that I've been following on Twitter for a while. Um, I think we only chatted one time when you were supposed to include me in a video that did not happen, but that's okay, Zach. Uh, I forgive you for it. Um, So today I wanna interview Zach Foster. Zach is a historian of Palestine and has a PhD in Near Eastern Studies from Princeton. He's the creator of Palestine Nexus, a digital archive of maps and documents related to the Middle East. Zach, thank you for agreeing to be interviewed and for taking the time to chat with us. Um, I was thinking maybe we should start a little bit uh, with you providing a little bit of background on you, your ties to Israel-Palestine, and kind of your passion related to that issue. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, first of all. And just to give you a bit of sense of my own background, I grew up in the very exotic suburban American Midwest in a Jewish household, going to Jewish schools, Jewish summer camps, going to synagogue every week. And that really exposed me to a very pungent flavor of American Judaism and American Zionism. And I think uh, as a result of that, I got really interested in Israel as uh, in high school. I went to Israel with my Jewish youth group in high school when I was 15 and wanted to return as a student, as an undergraduate student. And so I spent a semester abroad studying at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Michigan and found myself in an Ulpan class, a Hebrew language class with a bunch of Palestinians who were also trying to learn Hebrew. And this just really got me interested in Palestinian culture, in Arabic, in just the broader Arab Middle East. And so that really sparked an interest that five, 10 years later, led me down a path of doing uh, graduate research on Middle East history and specifically on Palestinian history. And I'd say that's the two or three minute version of how I wound up studying uh, the history of the Palestinian people uh, for my PhD dissertation. That's very fascinating. Um, I do want to ask you a few questions to unpack a few things. But when you talk to me about how you traveled with your youth groups uh, to Israel, um, I remember, I always remember, you know, every time I travel, the group of students that are on the plane, they usually look really young, American, Jewish, they're very excited to go party in Tel Aviv and, you know, do all the fun things. And in my head, as a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship, I always wonder, like, first of all, there are lots of people who are not able to do even like to visit, you know, not to return, but to visit, not to like come back and live there, um, that have really families that live there, histories, houses that are still there. And I also wonder always about how much do they know, um, you know, about the consequences or the price, I guess, of them being able to go and visit. And sometimes it's free and funded, right? So that's kind of an issue that I've uh, always thought about. And every time on a plane, that's something that I think about. It just, it it also shows privilege as well that is tied to ethnicity or religion, depending on how you define Judaism, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think your average American Jewish teenager who is sent to Israel with their Jewish youth group does not have a grasp on the the politics or the history of Israel-Palestine. That was certainly the case with me. I think my perception 
of the country was that, and my perception at the time of of the the Arabs, we we called them Arabs, not Palestinians, because the the, the Palestinians uh, are in the West Bank and Gaza, and and the Arabs, and where where you obviously do not go if you're on a Jewish youth group trip traveling to to Israel, you do not go to to the West Bank or to Gaza, or or rather, let me rephrase that: you actually do go to those areas, but you go to the you go to say the Dead Sea, which is which is a, a Israeli occupied West Bank, but but leaving that point aside. As, as a Jewish high school student, you are not exposed to uh, to any uh, aspect of, of, of the conflict, uh, I would say, other than the, the fact that the Palestinians are, are terrorists and that they're dangerous and that you always need to be on the watch out because at any time, at any place, a Palestinian could jump out of a bush and blow you up. And that's basically the extent of your exposure to Palestinian culture, society, and history and politics. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I thought it was interesting that you said the first encounter with Palestinians was in an Ulpan. Um, and that's like when you met them and became curious about it. And it seems like it's a recurring thing from the interviews I've done with activists is like that contact that with Palestinians in a setting that is not kind of shaped by ideology. Of course, there's always going to be hierarchies and power dynamics present. Um, but it seems like that contact is always important and always leads to like some change in perception. Um, and I wonder why that's not happening, you know, more often in Israel. I mean, part of it, of course, because the interaction is military soldiers versus Palestinians. And then inside of Israel, the dynamics are a bit even more complicated with Arabs, which you said you refer to them as Arabs, not Palestinian citizens of Israel. There's politics also behind the naming right, of the group. And I think in Israel, there's a whole debate about Migzar versus like Hivra and the terms that you, sector versus a, like, I guess Hivra is like community, society. So like there's always these, uh, plays with the terminology, but now we see also that the demonization is also happening and has been happening since Netanyahu became prominent political figure and uh, what's his name, Lieberman, against Palestinians inside of Israel. It seems like looking for these spaces where you can meet people without political influence, without prejudice, with an open mind, like creates a lot of, or helps you kind of get over uh, misperceptions or um, things that you thought you knew before. Can you tell me a little bit about how the trip to Israel turned you into becoming, into studying, you know, writing your dissertation about Palestine? Specifically, you wrote it about the term Palestine, right? That's exactly right. My my dissertation research is uh, covering the name Palestine, the history of the name Palestine. When did people use that word, Philistine, in history? That That's the first main question I try to ask in my dissertation. The second main question is, is, is about the Palestinians. So when did people start to call themselves Palestinians and why? And, mm -hmm. and I why do you think that's important? Like, can, I think it's important to talk about the debate behind Palestine, Palestine, right? Um, and that is happening in Israel because like the debate is there is no P in Arabic, so Palestinians did not exist. I don't know if you heard that before. A absolutely, um, that that's a fascinating point that you bring up. Yeah, the the, uh, the there was an Israeli politician. I, I can't remember exactly who, but I think it was a I think it was a woman. I think she said something to the effect of, "Oh, the, the, there is no such thing as Palestine because the the Palestinians don't have the letter P in Arabic." Some something to that effect. Now, this is a, just one example in a long line of examples and instances that uh, coming from the Zionist uh, community with the explicit attempt of trying to 
a claim that there was no such thing as Palestine, that the Arab inhabitants of Palestine never called the place Palestine. They never identified as Palestinian. They were either Arabs or Muslim Christians or Jerusalemites and Hebronites and Jothans, but they were not Palestinians. And I think there are a lot of reasons why this uh, narrative is popular in the Zionist community. Um, I think it's popular because most Israeli Jews are nationalists. They believe that the Jews have a right, a political right to sovereignty in Israel because Israel is their national homeland. And, and so wouldn't it be convenient if there were no Palestinians and if those Palestinians never called the place Palestine, well, maybe they're Syrians, maybe they're Jordanians, um, and maybe they should all just go to Syria and Jordan where they belong. So that I think that's underlying the historical research on trying to deny the existence that there was ever this place called Palestine is a, is a political uh, motive, is a political motive to... Uh, to strengthen the Zionist narrative, to to uh, to argue that their the land belongs to the Jews. So I think that that's underlying the reason why there are all of these people going around claiming there's no such thing as Palestine or the Palestinians. And ultimately, it was because of that propaganda that I was exposed to growing up that led me to do the research that I did. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about what you found and kind of where does the word Palestine come from? Why is it important? Who are the Palestinians? So uh, the, the the Palestinian uh, people, maybe we can start with the Palestinian people. I think the first question that I asked myself when I uh, undertook this research was, when should I even start to look for Palestinians in history? Uh, mm-hmm. Because um, I think uh, the problem with uh, writing history in general, right, is that you always have to choose a starting point. And that starting point is going to inherently bias the story that you tell. Mm-hmm. And so in my case, I, I, I did not want to start the story uh, at some arbitrary point in time, because the whole point of the of the story was trying to figure out when were the first instances, uh, uh, when, when do we first start to see Palestinians call themselves Palestinians uh, in history? And so if you just arbitrarily choose a point in time in the 18th century or the 19th century or the 20th century, you would always wonder, what if I had only started a few decades or a few centuries earlier, would I have found Palestinians then? And so what I did was I really just started really from the beginning of time. I mean, let's say from the historian's point of view, from the first instance in history where we have written records and really just going on down the historical record from the ancient world all the way down to the present. And I would say that to summarize a great deal of research in just a, in just a few sentences or a few paragraphs, you see the emergence of a Palestinian identity first in the 10th century. So we're talking uh, a thousand years ago. And so you have this guy, Ahmed ibn Muhammad al-Maqdisi, also known as Muqaddisi, and he calls himself Palestinian in his writings in the 10th century. You also have a number of hadith transmitters who are referred to as Philistini or Palestinian, because as you probably know, if you're a hadith transmitter, and if you're uh, writing a book of hadith, you want to make sure that you, in your isnad, so uh, you know, a hadith collection, right? Every hadith has the isnad, which is the train, chain of transmitters. And so, because you want to make sure that you're trying to determine the validity of any given hadith, you want to know where each of the hadith transmitters who transmitted the hadith, where did they live? Where did they travel to? And because you need to know that because if, for example, one hadith transmitter w- was born in Iraq and lived his whole life in Iraq, and he claims to have transmitted a hadith to someone who was born and raised and lived their whole life in Morocco, well, then that's probably not a very reliable chain of transmission or going all the way back to the prophet. And so you, you would include things like Filistini, Iraqi, Maghrebi. So those labels got included in the hadith uh, transmission. So you also see Filistini appear in the early Islamic period um, as a label to describe hadith transmitters. And so you do have a Palestinian identity in the early Islamic period. This is not something that's generally well known. Now, what appears to happen over the course of the 
the period after the fall, uh, after the Crusader conquest. Um, so we're talking 11th, uh, 11th century, uh, end of the 11th century. You, what you have is the gradual, you have a gradual decline in the usage of the term Palestine, as well as essentially a, a total total vacuum in, in usage of the term Palestinians, Palestinian. Um, and that that really, uh, and so maybe just to double click on that for a bit. So, so for, for many, many hundreds of years after the Crusader conquest, right, Palestine is no longer an administrative unit in the Muslim empire as it was in the early period, right? So in the first few hundred years, June Philistine or the district of Palestine uh, was a district in the Islamic empire. And then uh, once the crusader uh, crusaders invaded and, and overthrew the, the Muslims, uh, the Muslim uh, state in Palestine, uh, the crusaders used other words. They called it the kingdom of Jerusalem and they used other terms. They did not use the word Palestine. And so Palestine does uh, diminish in popularity over the course of, let's say, from the 11th century all the way to the 19th century. And as far as I can tell, it's really used in two primary contexts. The first context is to describe the land as it once was, um, kind of the same way that you and I can talk about Phoenicia or Mesopotamia, even though we know we're we know we don't call Lebanon Phoenicia, and we don't call Iraq Mesopotamia. But perhaps if we were referring to a text or a source or the 19th century, we might say, oh, you know, we might use those words to refer to how that land was known in a historical time period. I think the same was true of Palestine from the 11th century to the 19th century. That is to say that Muslim writers, even Christian, many Christian writers as well, and many Jewish writers as well, use the term Philistine to refer to the way the land was known and referred to in, in the ancient world, as well as in the early Islamic period. That's the first usage. The second usage of the term Palestine from the 11th century to the 19th century is that you have the city of Ramle, and the city of Ramle, by the way, was the capital of the district of Palestine in the early Islamic period. It also, by the way, happened to be the most important city of Palestine, the most important economic hub within Palestine, because it lied at the crossroads between the trading routes of Damascus and Cairo. It had a fertile hinterland. It was a very productive economy. And so, Pal and so Ramallah was this very important city in the early Islamic period. And so long after uh, that district of Palestine no longer uh, was gone, uh, the term uh, Palestine seems to have been remembered in the city of Ramla. And in fact, you have many, many sources from the 11th, 12th century all the way to the 19th century of people from the city of Ramla or, or people who have visited the city of Ramla using the term Palestine in their writings in a very casual way, in a very unconscious way to suggest that they, they actually just called the place Palestine as a matter of course, more or less continuously over the past thousand years. And then, and so that that brings us really to the 19th century, where everything changes, and and we can get into that. But maybe I'll just pause there before going any further. Uh, that's great. I actually didn't know any of this history. It's fascinating, and I would love to read your dissertation um, as soon as I uh, get some sleep through the night, having a newborn. Uh, but it sounds fascinating. So you did this dissertation. How did the dissertation and the research um, inspire? If it did inspire. Uh, the archives that you started? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, I really le left off the story I was just telling you a minute ago in the 19th century. And I would say that the digital archive that I've created is uh, very much a product of the research I did from the 19th and 20th centuries. And so maybe I can just say a brief word about that as well. Mm -hmm. What happened in the late 19th century was that you had many, many Europeans, Americans, Russians, French, British, German, uh, you had travelers and tourists and pilgrims visiting Palestine and the Holy Land. You had missionaries open up schools throughout the region. These are German schools, French, Russian, American, British schools. You also had uh, consular offices open up, a French consular office, a British, an American, a German, an Austrian, uh, a Scottish, a British, 
a Russian consular office opening up in, in Jerusalem. And so I think the the cumulative sum of all of these uh, Western influences, by the way, and these Westerners were using the word Palestine. If you go to a Russian, if you go to Russian sources in the 19th century or look at German or French or, or English sources from the 19th century, all of those peoples are using uh, the term Palestine very frequently in their writings. It is the most popular name to describe uh, the land, uh, together with Syria and the Holy Land. Um, but Palestine is very popular. And all of these people who are calling the place Palestine are visiting the country. By the end of World War One, you have something uh, on the order of 40,000 tourists, pilgrims, uh, travelers coming to Palestine every year. They're bringing with them their Baedeker guidebooks that say that, that, that you know, the, the Baedeker guidebook to Palestine, and they're holding the guidebook in their hands, wandering around Palestine. Just imagine what impact that's going to have on a local inhabitant. Uh, some of them, by the way, even start selling those very guidebooks of Palestine, right? So that's that's one obvious way in which the, the tourists have an impact on, on the way locals call the place and name the place. I think a second uh, important impact is that uh, they open up tons of schools. And in those schools, they uh, introduce uh, books called the history of Palestine and the geography of Palestine. They circulate maps of Palestine in those schools. And, and so lo and behold, you know, graduates of those schools, of the German school, of the Russian school, and by the way, of the Ottoman schools as well, because the Ottomans are opening up tons of schools uh, as well. They're called Tanzimat schools, and they're also teaching their, uh, the Muslim students who are attending the Ottoman Tanzimat schools. They're also learning about Palestine. And so basically what happens as a result of all of these impacts is that, lo and behold, uh, Arabic-speaking inhabitants of Palestine start to call themselves Palestinians in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Now, to, to get back to your to your question around kind of the the digital archive. And so, so, so what happened was over the course of doing this research, I got so interested in maps because I really think maps are so critical to identities like Palestine. And, and it's critical, I think, in explaining why it is that identities like Palestinian uh, flourish in history. Because if you really think about what a Palestinian identity is, it's an identity based around a place, Palestine. And that place, Palestine, is so large that you and I cannot see it with our own two eyes. Uh, we cannot stand up on a, a mountain and gaze down and see all of Palestine, right? We cannot we cannot invite a Palestine into our home and see Palestine like we could with our family, right? We, we cannot see Palestine the same way we could see a village or a town. Palestine doesn't really have any physical manifestations like a religious identity, right? If you're a Muslim or a Christian, right, there are physical manifestations. There's a church or a mosque, right? There's symbols, there's a cross, or there's a crescent, right? So all of these other identities, like, like a religious identity, like a city-based identity, they have, I think, more tangible uh, uh, things in the real world that give that, those identities meaning and purpose and structure. And so I think the Palestine identity, a Palestinian identity needs all of those same things. And I think maps serve such a critical piece of this Palestinian identity, as I think it serves a critical piece in really any identity based on a place, um, a, a large place like Palestine. And so that, that was ultimately uh, the reason why I started collecting all of these maps uh, was because I thought they were just so important in understanding the origins and development of a Palestinian identity. And so some of the earliest maps of, of Arabic maps of Palestine uh, are, are maps that I grew just absolutely fascinated with because I think they played a key role in explaining why people started to call themselves Palestinians. And, and so I started collecting these maps and collected, you know, digital, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm just working in libraries and archives and I'm just photographing these maps. And it just occurred to me at some point that like these maps were, were like one of ones. They're just totally inimical, rare one of ones that are buried in, they could be buried in atlases published in the 19th century. They could just be one-off maps in archives that are not digitally available anywhere. They could be just, um, you know, ma maps published in books. 
Uh, they could be maps that I bought or found at, you know, just in a, in a bookstore or a bookshop in a place like Istanbul or, or Jaffa or Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. So I, I started collecting all of these maps and uh, for my research, but then at some point realized that I feel like these maps, uh, you know, I feel like there should be broader interest in these maps. Like, you know, they're, they're, some of them are aesthetically uh, very pleasing. They're very unique. They they illustrate very unique aspects of the, de- the dem- demographic history of Palestine, or you know, the geological uh, artifacts of Palestine, uh, or 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 perhaps even the other aspects like the political administrative units of Palestine. Right. So all of these maps are telling us all these interesting all of these interesting things about Palestine, and so it just seemed like uh, as a person who loves sharing and likes being open with sources and. Um, and just generally loves loves maps. I just wanted to share them with the world. And so that was really the, I would say, the the origins of the archive. And I think at, at some point I realized, well, why does this have to be just limited to, to maps? Why don't I also share uh, rare documents that I found, manuscripts that I photographed, um, just our archival documents uh, uh, that, that I think are very interesting and relevant to the history of Palestine and the broader Middle East? As well as things like um, newspapers that I've digitized, so 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 ultimately it has turned into a broader, a larger digital collection of manuscripts, uh, maps, documents, and other archival materials. Mm-hmm. No, that's fascinating, and I think you know maybe maybe one way to kind of think about it for me, it's not that there's there are no physical or tangible things that show what a Palestinian identity is, it's that there's an active attempt at erasing anything, right, and banning anything that is related to this identity, that proves the existence of this identity, that solidifies this identity. Um, for instance, in Israel, like now, I don't know if, if you're following with the, I'm sure you follow the results of the Israeli elections. But one of the Likud members said, we're going to ban Palestinian citizens of Israel from carrying the Palestinian flag, or we're uh, banning Palestinians in Israel from talking about the Nakba, right? And what happened then? And so like, there's like an active attempt at erasing that history, at erasing that identity, at dividing Palestinians, uh, like, you know, um, refugees versus the Palestinians in Israel versus the Palestinians in the West Bank versus the Palestinians in Gaza. And I think that's what um, what's happening more of like there's no tangible thing. There is actually an active attempt at trying to question, destroy, uh, erase anything that could make it tangible and kind of even though it is tangible for a lot of people and real for a lot of people. A hundred percent agree. And if I could just jump in with, just to share a few thoughts on that point, because I think you you really you nailed it on the head when you said there's such an active attempt to. Um, to erase Palestine and to erase uh, the Palestinian identity. Um, and by the way, this is a there's a long tradition of this, and I don't think people realize this. Um, but um, you know, the, 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 this dates all the way back to the 1920s. So in the 1920s, the the um, uh, you you already have some Zionists basically saying in, in the Yishuv in, in the in the Zionist community in Palestine, you have Zionists basically saying we do not want the word in Hebrew to be Palestina. We want it to be Eretz Israel. Um, right, so there's already this, this there's already this attempt, and 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 they they advocate they try to still, uh, adv- advocate to the British that the British remove the word Palestina in Hebrew uh, from the stamps and from the coins and from the bills that they that they print and mint 
they they they're advocating that the British remove the word Palestinian Hebrew from uh you know from from these British uh, pa- uh mandatory Palestine state symbols. And then I mean th- this gets even worse I think in the years after the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. Uh, there, there's a much more and then even and then I would say it gets even worse after 1967, where people I don't think a lot of people realize this, but literally the word Palestine uh, using the word Palestine was illegal in the Palestinian occupied territories uh, from 1967 uh, until 1993 when in, in the Oslo process. But even today in, in areas B and C of the West Bank, if you are a Palestinian uh, and you use the word uh, Palestine in a book or a pamphlet or in the name of an organization in, uh, in areas B and C, you are uh, committing a, a, a violation you are doing something illegal by using the word Palestine. And this came to a, this blew up in 1980 when the Israeli military, when, when the, the, what was formerly the, the, the Bank of Palestine in Gaza, which had been shut down, by the way, when Israel occupied the Gaza Strip in 1967, the, the Bank of Palestine in Gaza was required by the Israeli military to change its name from the Bank of Palestine to something else. Uh, in order to reopen in 1980, because guess why? Do, do you know why? Because Palestine. because the word Palestine. This is this is according to the Israeli army. The word Palestine endangers Israeli security. I mean, just just think about that for a second. Let, let let's play a little game, okay? I'm gonna I'm gonna just try and you know Palestine 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 alert if you are if you are listening to this podcast you know take cover before you get hit in the face by my saliva okay yeah it's sticky okay the word Palestine is obviously not dangerous um and in the end the Israeli Supreme Court actually uh, overturned that uh, military rule and allowed the Bank of Palestine in Gaza to to retain its name however however. Um, the argument that was made was that they were grandfathered in, but nevertheless, no new institutions would be allowed to use the word Palestine in their name in the Palestinian occupied territories after 1980. And so there's been this war on the word Palestine. There's been a war on the Palestinian people, uh, really from, I would say, the 1920s all the way to the present day. Yeah, that's fascinating. I like the historical anecdotes that you keep giving us. Um, I think they're very fascinating and important. So talking about, you know, terms and names and naming, um, I really was fascinated. I listened to an interview you had recently. Um, I can't remember who it was with, um, but you were referring to kind of how your position on the conflict, oh, you, you don't, we don't call it conflict anymore you know, on um, Israel's occupation of the Palestinians, or some people would refer to it as apartheid as a better way to describe what's happening on the ground. So you said that you changed your position on the issue or on what's happening in Israel-Palestine. And a lot of people were questioning your Jewish identity. They're saying you don't have to be anti-Israeli to be pro-Palestinian or your critique of Zionism, it didn't sit with them. So can you kind of explain a little bit more, first of all, about your understanding of Zionism and like what it's doing and then your identification with or lack of with Zionism in general and Israel in general? Yeah, so I, I would say that most scholars today, well, most historians today, most political science t- today would describe Zionism as a settler colonial movement. And we need to, first of all, just leave aside our biases about what settler colonial, uh, whether settler colonial movements are good or bad. We, we presumably all have opinions about that. But it, we're trying to get at, we're, we're trying to describe uh, a certain type of, of movement 
which involves a group of people. It's a group of, uh, it's a population that uh, leaves their country of origin and moves to a new country or moves to a new land. And this describes, for example, the uh, uh, American uh, colonial uh, settlers in the you know, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. It describes the uh, the, the the movement of of people the. <clears throat> Uh, to South Africa, to New Zealand, to Australia, to Canada, and 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 what distinguishes these popu uh, these populations from uh, uh, colonial movements is that they have no intention of returning to their home country. They have no intention of even maintaining really a connection to their home country. And in this sense, I think Zionism is actually an ideal type of settler colonial movement, by which I mean that it embraces that idea of abandoning the country of origin to a far greater extent than does the American col uh, settler colonial. Uh, a colonial movement in the, in the 18th century or the Australian uh, settler colonial movement. Because in the case of Zionism, they were explicitly uh, uh, saying, we want to not only uh, leave behind our country of origin where we face persecution, uh, but we want to create a new state and build a new society where we are the masters in our own domain. And so I, I would say that that is much even more uh, representative or reflective of the uh, what we really mean when we say a, a settler colonial movement, even more so than say the American case where there were many American uh, uh, colonists who actually wanted to maintain their connection to to, to the motherland, to, to Great Britain. So th this this is this is what Zionism, I think, is. It's a settler colonial movement. And of course, I think the problem with settler colonial movements is that invariably, uh, in almost every case, and maybe we could say in every case, they uh, invariably result in the destruction of the native population, and 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 this can be this can happen uh, very directly through massacres and expulsions. It, it can happen more indirectly through purchasing of lands. Uh, or or, or set, settling lands and then displacing uh, the locals who lived on those lands uh, before they arrived. It can happen in any number of ways. Um, it can happen through the spread of diseases, right? In the case of, of colonial America, right, where the native population ninety percent uh, died probably from disease, not not from you know direct violence. But um, in any case, these settler colonial movements they they invariably have terrible terrible consequences uh, for the native populations. And I think uh, in the in the case of Zionism, it just to, just to give you some very uh, specific examples of how this manifested itself in the 1910s, uh, 20s, and 30s. Um, I think in the first case, you had many Zionists who showed up, and because they're, uh, they were trying to build a new Hebrew society uh, that relied on Hebrew Jewish labor, not Arab or foreign labor, uh, they ended up moving to Palestine, buying land, and then kicking out and, and displacing the Palestinians who were living on those lands. And, and, and you know, I think that was a terrible mistake. I think they should have... Uh, <laughs> Uh, done a much better job of trying to uh, maintain their uh, the workers, the Arab farmers and, and tenants on those lands rather than displace them. That was, uh, I think, a, a, just a strategically a poor decision. I think uh, it, things got much worse, though, in the 1920s and, and 1930s when Zionist community was was growing larger. And um, the Zionists were realizing that, um, you know, they wanted to, they, they were they were building institutions of statehood, right? And, and of course, when you're building a state, in a land that is 60, 70, 80% Palestinian, and you're trying to build a Zionist state, well, guess what kinds of things they were discussing, Anwar? They were asking themselves, what are we going to do with all these Palestinians? Are, you know, how, how, how are we going to build a Jewish state in a land that's 60, 70, 80% Palestinian? That's going to be really tough. Do we have to expel the Palestinians? These are conversations happening in the 1930s and 40s. Do we have to expel them? Hey, maybe they might leave on their own. Right, so there are different there are different positions taken on this issue. The I would say the doves, the Zionists left in, in the Yishuv had had a much more um, let's say reconciliation a, rec a reconciliatory approach to to the Palestinians. They believe that the Palestinians would be willing to live in peace with them. 
and then you had the much more confrontational approach on the on, on the Israeli uh, the Zionist right, the the Jabotinsky approach, which said no 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 no. Um, these people consider themselves indigenous. Um, they consider this land theirs, and they consider us foreign invaders and occupiers. And there's no world in which they would ever be willing to share that uh, that land with us because they came here illegitimately against the political will of the vast majority of the local population. And so they have no right to have any political control on the land. And, and so the, the Zionist right, led by Jabotinsky, said these people are not going to compromise with us. The only possible approach here is force. We're going to have to expel these people. Um, so anyways, the, the reason I'm bringing up all these anecdotes is because the more you learn about the history of Zionism, the more ugly it, it, it looks. And I think that was my, uh, that was certainly my uh, discovery. And we could keep going, right? This we, We're only in the 1930s and 40s. We haven't even talked about the history uh, of the Zionist uh, state and the, the Israeli state in the 1948 war, during which the, uh, the Zionist state forcibly expelled 700,000 Palestinians from their homes in what I, I think you could only uh, describe as a, a as a as an ethnic cleansing. Uh, remember, these Palestinians, many of them, 10 to 15,000 of them tried to return to their homes in the years after the war. They wanted to return to claim their property. They lost animals. They had books and manuscripts in their homes. They wanted to return to their properties that they left behind during the war. And guess what happened when they tried to return? They were mercilessly shot at. Many hundreds of Palestinians were slaughtered every single year in the years after this, the founding of the state from 1948 uh, all the way through the mid-1950s. They were shot and killed because they wanted to return to their home after the end of a war. So, I mean, that now we're no longer talking about Zionism, but we're talking about the Israeli state. But this is the kind of logic that th this is what happens when your ideology says that this home, this state is a home for Jews and not for other people. And so I, I think fundamentally the problem with that logic is that um, invariably it results in discrimination against the the local, the native population, the non-settler colonial society. And of course, that, that manifests itself in 101 million ways that you could probably tell me, you could probably elaborate on much better than I could having having you know been a gr grown up there and having probably experienced a, a ton of, of discrimination and racism yourself. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I think the history is very important and that will bring us to talk about the Israeli elections. I know you were talking about the left and how they had a different approach than Jabotinsky and his supporters about what to do with Palestinians. But it seems right now that, first of all, we saw in the recent elections, like uh, parties like Meret, um, they didn't even pass. Balad didn't pass. Uh, and that's like they're two different parties with two different histories. So we can talk a little bit more about that. But what is actually concerning, not only that Meret is out and Avuda and uh, Yeshati, the, you know, I wouldn't, if you talk to Palestinians, they'll say it doesn't matter if it's Benjamin Netanyahu or if it's Yair Lapid or whatever government forms in Israel, because the outcome to the Palestinians is the same. But it seems like, though, the coalition that Bibi Netanyahu will form and expected to form with Smutrich and um, Ben Gvir, who are way, way radical, and we're not only talking about their approach to Palestinians instigating violence in Jerusalem, um, entering Al-Aqsa Mosque and trying to instigate violence there, and like showing their gun in Sheikh Jarrah and asking uh, the police and the military to shoot at any Palestinian. Um, it's also the, the rhetoric about Palestinian citizens of Israel as well, where they, he like, he's a member of the Kahana movement, 
who always asked for kicking those Palestinians out. So we're talking about a third Nakba, right? Or a second, third, I mean, you can, I guess we can talk about multiple Nakbas, right? Uh, 48, 67, and like multiple incidents where Palestinians lost homes. But a lot of people are talking about a, a, like a wave of uh, stripping citizenship, threatening stripping citizenship uh, of anyone who raises the Palestinian flag, moving borders to become Palestinian, but there's no Palestinian state. He's not pro-Palestinian state. So I don't know what that means. And then um, talking about penalizing anybody who doesn't show loyalty to the state of Israel. So we're even moving to a more extreme direction there. And, you know, a lot of people are hopeless. I don't know. What are your views on the elections? What's happening in Israel? Um, any thoughts on how we can go from here? Yeah, it's it's really a, it's a sad day uh, for Israel um, and for Palestine. And for anyone who has who has dreams of, of peace in the Middle East, 70 out of the 120 seats look like uh, they're going to, to parties who prefer permanent subjugation of the Palestinians, their gradual ethnic cleansing from places like Jerusalem, uh, their ethnic cleansing from places like Musafar Yatta, uh, the entrenchment of settlements in the occupied West Bank, uh, uh, the continuation of home demolitions. Um, so, so 70 out of the 120 seats in the Israeli uh, Knesset uh, are, are going to parties that favor uh, the subjugation of the Palestinian people. Okay, so this is a very sad day in Palestinian history. Um, it's a sad day in Israeli history as well. Um, now, the other thing to point out is that, right, of the four parties um, that have been elected, that, that appear to be, uh, uh, they will be, become the, the governing coalition, three of them are religious, okay? And uh, and the, the Israeli uh, religious right is is um, has extremely dangerous views, okay? Very, very dangerous views. As you pointed out, um, I mean, Ben Gvir himself has openly talked about expelling Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, uh, from, from Israel. I mean, this is, we're literally talking about a government. Uh, and, and by the way, Ben Gvir is probably going to get some kind of um, ministry. Uh, he's probably going to become a, a head of security, right? So he will, he will, he's vying for a position where he has control over the police. Guess what's going to happen to uh, West Bank Palestinians when Itamar Ben Gvir is in charge of the Israeli military police in the West Bank? Guess what? Guess what? How much more? How many uh, more settler uh, attacks you're going to have against the Palestinians? Guess how much more violent attacks there's going to be on Palestinians going to school in Safar Yatta? Guess how many more Palestinians are olive groves and olive trees are going to be destroyed? How many more random acts of terrorism and violence will be committed against the Palestinians? This is a tremendously sad day for for all Palestinians. Uh, really everywhere in Palestine and abroad. Now, having said that, I, I, I actually do want to point out that I do think there is some some silver lining here because in my opinion, there is something so, somehow refreshing when, when the fascism and racism that is pervasive in Israeli society, that when it actually gets properly uh, reflected and shown in the governing co coalition, there is somehow, that is somehow um, a bit refreshing because it it removes the veneer it, uh, of 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 a government, uh, say like uh, Yair Lapid government, who 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 maybe maybe talks about a two state solution in, in front of the UN, but when you look at his actual policies, he is basically just as pro apartheid as anybody else. And so I think there is something a little bit refreshing about the veneer being removed and the reality being seen for what it is. And I think ultimately, just as we saw in the United States after Donald Trump was elected, we saw the rise in donations to human rights organizations. We saw the rise in uh, progressive media outlets reporting on what was happening. We saw um, basically all of these progressive movements gain power, uh, gain, attract more funding. Um, uh, and so I think, I, I think a similar thing could possibly happen in Israel-Palestine, whereby 
the more the more power the right gets. I think the immunity system of the left can kick in, and it, I think that that should ultimately have some positive effect, some positive impetus uh, on people who really do uh, want peace and do want justice in Israel Palestine. So, uh, I, although I would say yes, it's obviously tremendously painful uh, f- uh, to see a, a, raci- a racist and fascist government uh, come to power in in Israel. I think there is still, nevertheless, a silver lining to the cloud. Talking about this hopeful kind of way to view it, first of all, one thing I, I usually like to end a conversation with is what kind of advice do you have for young activists who are lo- watching all of this and like feel hopeless or helpless? Or if you prefer, what kind of advice would you have given yourself when you started working on these issues? Because it's challenging, really, uh, speaking out, um, investing in talking about uh, Palestine, about justice, regardless if you're Jewish or non-Jewish who's working for Palestinians or working for Palestinian rights. It it is exhausting. The attacks are very severe. Um, You being Jewish, of course, I'm sure your Jewish identity has been questioned multiple times, and some, some might have referred to you as a self-hating Jew. I don't know, but I've heard that before from other people, from other activists. Um, so kind of what kind of advice do you give these young activists um, to navigate all of this and maintain hope? I think the first thing I would advise any activist um, on would be get educated, educate yourself. Knowledge is power, especially in Israel-Palestine. I think the more educated you are, the more knowledgeable you are about the history of the conflict, um, the more uh, aware you are about the facts on the ground, the reality of the violence on the ground, I think the better equipped you are to be able to advocate on behalf of, of uh, on behalf of the Palestinian people and just in general on behalf of, of, of people, anyone striving for freedom, peace, and justice in Israel-Palestine. And how do you get yourself educated? Well, uh, you, you gotta you, you you gotta read and you gotta listen and you gotta watch. I think the first thing I would do is I would I would binge every single uh, podcast episode that Anwar has produced um, on the Olive Branch podcast. I would listen to Occupied Thoughts, uh, which is another excellent podcast by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Um, I, I, I would listen to Noura Arakat. I would li- I would listen uh, uh, to Peter Beinart. Uh, I would listen to people like Rashid Khalidi. There, there's a long list of Palestine experts um, who Ilan Pape is a, has has very interesting uh, perspective as 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 a as an Israeli Jew who has basically been banned or barred from from Israel. So you have many many enlightened voices. Gaza Girl is a Laura, uh, I forget her last name. Laura is a fantastic person to follow. They have a podcast called the Palestine Pod. So there's so many great resources to follow, to watch, to listen to. Um, get, so I think just educating yourself is going to be incredibly empowering because I think ultimately activists, I think first and foremost, need to be feel empowered that they are on the right side of history. And I think the more you learn about uh, what's going on on the ground, the more empowered you will feel. And thus, the more likely you are, it is, to, the, the more likely you will be to advocate for Palestine and for the Palestinians and for freedom and justice in Israel-Palestine. So I say that that's the first thing to say. I would also just say, generally speaking, like, um, there's a difference between being right and being effective. And I think a lot of times activists insist on being right rather than than being effective. And by the way, this happens to me uh, all the time as well. And I can even give you an example 
uh, where I erred on the side of, of wanting to be effective rather than being right. And uh, the example I would share to that, uh, to that effect is that the university, uh, uh, Princeton University, back in I think 20, 2013, 2014, back when I was a PhD student in the Department of Near Eastern Studies, the university, there, there were five faculty members at the university that started a petition to, to have the university boycott, excuse me, to divest from companies that were profiting off the Israeli occupation and the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and the Israeli siege on Gaza. And that was a petition submitted to Princeton University administration by five faculty members. Now, let me, and by the way, I obviously support as, as an individual, let me just mm-hmm. say, say, say this very clearly. I am, I am a supporter uh, as an individual and even potentially in, in certain circumstances as a member of, of maybe say uh, as an American citizen, right? So I'm not exclusively limiting this to my role as, a, as an individual. I think there are some states and some governments that I think this would also apply to. But I think in the case of a university, I don't think the Princeton University will ever, will ever divest uh, from companies that profit off Israeli occupation. And, 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 and so I think, but, but however, I do think that the university would consider a much broader kind of ethical approach to investing. That is to say that I think if we come to the university and we say, listen, we want you, we, we want to create a framework uh, within which we are willing to say, these are the types of investments that make sense to have in the portfolio, in the investment portfolio of a higher education institution. And these are the types of investments that are not appropriate uh, for an institution that is committed to academic excellence and is committed to truth. And we, we could debate what, what, is a, what we would consider to be an ethical investment and an unethical investment. But I think if you take a broader approach and zoom out, you have a much, much greater chance of success of achieving the exact same outcome. Because as soon as you say, listen, Princeton, we think that the university should divest from companies that are profiting off occupation. No matter where those uh, occupations are, be them in Western Sahara or Israel-Palestine or, or, or Egypt or anywhere else. Um, and we can say, listen, Princeton, we think the Princeton University should divest from companies that are emitting fo- uh, carbon emissions and fossil fuels that are uh, exacerbating c- c- climate change. Right. So that's another, I think, a broader category. I-, I think the equivalent would be if you say, hey, listen, let's Princeton ought to divest from these two fossil fuel companies, even though there are another 14 fossil fuel companies the university is invested in. I just don't think that the, the, the investment committee who's in charge of the Princeton University endowment is going to be interested in singling out. Uh, individual companies or individual investments. I think a much a much better approach would be just to have a broader conversation about what is and is not an ethical investment. So this is just one example of what I mean by being right versus being effective. But I do think that activists would would do themselves a, a favor by by trying to think about what it is that they're trying to change and and how and and the powers that be and how they would be impacted by your advocacy. So that's just that's just one example, but I think it, it would it, you could think of other instances in which you could apply this same logic. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. That's uh, actually a great advice and a great observation, um, you know, about effectiveness versus being right. Um, Zach, I really want to thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation that we had. Um, I think our listeners are going to learn a lot um, about the history of Palestine, about you, and hopefully we'll leave with, uh, you know, a, a brighter outlook for the future. I want to, I just want to give you a minute to, to, you know, add anything that you wanted to add, something that I missed. 
or something I didn't ask you about that you think uh, is important to mention? Well, I would just say that uh, I, I would encourage everyone here, if, if they want to uh, le- learn more about, um, you know, Palestine uh, and the Middle East, you can um, find me on, on Twitter at underscore Zach Foster. I have a YouTube channel as well where I produce content on Palestinian history and other topics. Um, my YouTube handle is just Zachary Foster, so you can find some of my content there. And also, if you want to follow along, uh, I also um, will be uh, kicking off a newsletter, hopefully very very soon. Although I'm not uh, promising any, uh, um, mm-hmm. I'm not promising when, but hopefully soon I'll be launching a newsletter on Palestine. Um, it will cover broad topics, anything related to Palestine. So you can subscribe to that newsletter uh, on my on the website PalestineNexus.com, which is also where I've uploaded those maps and documents and archival materials that I, I made mention uh, that we 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 discussed earlier in the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. I have to sign up for that letter, the newsletter. Okay, thank you, Zach, and I want to thank. Um, our listeners for tuning in. I will see you in another episode later. Thanks. Thank you.